I'm not known for being at the cutting edge of feminist work. Most of the women's struggle in recent years, as you know, almost all of it has been waged, launched, organized, fought by women and defined much of the theory also has been developed. And that is as it should be that it's time for women to be doing the talking and men to listen. I noticed in recent years, though, people were saying to me, why don't you write something about the women's struggle? And I pleaded a division of labor, although in Democracy for the Few, the very first edition, 74, I had, it was the only study in American politics that actually, it was the first one, I should say, that actually had stuff on, on women in the law, women in voting, and a number of other things, the struggles of women in it. But I never saw myself as someone who should be doing that, and that it was very important for women to be doing it. I've changed my view uh, because I think it's very important for men to be giving attention to this subject because the women's problem is men, you know. The women's struggle involves men and, uh, and men have to really be actively thinking and joining in that struggle and continuing to listen. Well, I'll begin with a question that was asked by Sigmund Freud. He said, what does woman want? It's a very famous question that's been used again and again, usually ironically. Uh, and after listening for decades to the tormented histories of his female patients, Freud the patriarch still wasn't sure what they wanted. Now what women want is what most of us want, the opportunity to live decent, fulfilling, loving, and secure lives. And before all that, women want something else. They want to stop being oppressed and victimized by men. And they also want to stop being victimized by the social order that has been created. It may not just be a particular man, but it may be a patriarchal social order. <clears throat> In most societies, women have been relegated to subordinate positions. Endowed with a denser musculature, larger frames, greater body strength, men have not been above using their physical strength to enforce their superordination. In addition, you know, women are, uh, have been burdened by a protracted pregnancy period, protracted lactation, and often the dependency of children on women have often made women dependent on others. Such biological differences might make male supremacy possible, but not inevitable. I mean, they're a necessary condition for abuse, but not a sufficient cause. Not every male mistreats women. I mean, all adults are stronger than children, but not every adult abuses children, although we find they're a lot more than we had thought. Other conditions have to obtain. According to one theory, much of a patriarchy gets more widely established as a real cultural and social force with the advent of surplus property. That is, when you move from early tribal subsistence society to developed horticulture society, you get surplus. With surplus, you get possessions and, and such. In the early hunting societies, for instance, there was a, an early horticulture, there was a relatively non-possessive enjoyment of children, a non-exploitative relationship between mates. Generally, I don't want to idealize these societies, over-idealize them. Uh, there was no private property other than personal effects and utensils and weapons, things like that. And women often played a surprisingly prominent role. Morgan's classic study of the Iroquois society, of ancient society, which very much impressed Engels, you know, 
uh, one of the discoveries was how the Iroquois women played a dominant role in the decision-making councils and the like. Um, with the emergence of more developed horticulture and the advent of landed property, private profit was now possible. Family lineage and identity and possession gets tied to land and to wealth. The labor of women and children itself becomes a source of accumulation. There are some early theorists like Osborne Ward who says the first practices of slavery began in the patriarchal family were affected on women and children by the patriarch which is, I mean, shows you the confluence of gender and class oppression right from an early start. Women themselves become possessions in that kind of system. Their labor and sexuality becomes controlled in the service of profit and family and property and marriage. With class society comes the whole-scale subjugation of women. That's one of the theories. And it's, it's a, I think it's a pretty fair approximation. Uh, I'm not saying it can't have re some redoing in it and whatever else, but it, but it makes a lot of sense. I would also argue something else, more immediate, that people exploit other people because they get something from it. They benefit from it. It's advantageous to them. Whether, whether you are the plantation owner who has slaves or the feudal lord who has serfs, or you're the male who's exploiting women, or you're the boss who's exploiting workers. There's a reason you do it, and it's not because you, you're kind of hung up and you're not in touch with your inner feelings and you can't cry. Uh, it's because you like it, you enjoy it, you get a lot of good things. You live very well from it. You live very well off the labor of others. And I would say that female subjugation exists because it has worked to the advantage of males. It's a rather, it's a rather unpresupposing proposition, I mean, uh, and yet it's amazing how people get startled that it's, it works to the advantage of males. I mean, it's important to say that because today there's a lot of talk about how men are victimized by their own sexism, they cheat themselves out of mutually gratifying relationships, um, that in the long run it would be better for them if they didn't do these things. Maybe so, but nobody lives in the long run. They all live in the here and now. And in the here and now, we mustn't overlook the fact that patriarchal dominance provides its own gratifying privileges. The traditional patriarch has women who do all the drudgery work and child rearing, who tend to his personal needs, submit to his sexual desires, do not question his right to extramarital indulgences, are economically dependent on him, who supplement the social production and even the family income, provide subsistence labor unpaid, much of it important and totally unpaid, and who have no defense against his tyrannical commands and his more corrupt impulses. The husbands, fathers, and employers who have reaped the benefits of this victimization over the centuries and to this day have not noticeably complained about feeling deprived of the deeper gratifications that come with gender equality. No more than have the pimps who live lavishly off the labor of their victimized prostitutes. Male dominance, I think, extends beyond the family into other social institutions. Just like racists, just like class oppressors, the male supremacist develops an array of myths to justify their advantages.
Oh, what do you have a conspiracy about this too, Parenti? I mean, you think they sit there and they consciously say, oh, how can we keep women in their place? And I, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Read Ann Jones' book. She has a very delightful preface, a book called Women Who Kill. And she says, all the literature in this field takes pains to say, I'm not positing a conspiracy theory. This is just the cultural mores, this is something that just kind of happened in inertia, beloveness. They all make pains to say, well, I'm not saying that men have consciously conspired. She said, I want to say men have consciously conspired. All you got to do is deal with the law, deal with the police, deal with the political structure, deal with Orrin Hatch, deal with these people. Are you telling me there's no conscious conspiring? You're sitting there watching these guys on TV? Yes, of course they conscious. How do you think people maintain hegemony? How do you think they, they consciously, consciously think of how they can keep you in your place? They're thinking just as hard as feminist fighters and revolutionaries are thinking how to get out of it. And they have a lot more resources in many cases. So like the racists and like the class oppressors, the male supremacists developed this whole array of myths through the ages. Female subordination has been treated as a, a manifestation of the natural order of things. By the way, that is the common trait of all these oppressions. If you read the feudal lords, they will tell you the serfs naturally belong there. That is their place. It's, it's the way it is. The Chinese landlord class used to have the phrase, the sun cannot rise in the west. And it meant that you peasants could not no more change places with me or hope to better your life than you could expect the sun to rise in the west. It just doesn't happen. That this is all part of the natural order of things. And to develop that, they enlist folklore, religion, philosophy, science, literature. I mean, science. Science is, I mean, the way science is, I was just reading, the way science has been enlisted in the support of racism, for instance, as you know. I was just reading George Templeman, uh, Templeman Strong, you know, the, the, the patrician in the 19th century, who was saying, it's amazing, we have black people who are running businesses, writing literature, organizing organizations for their liberation, doing this, doing that, and this, that. but science, science comes in with a precision, a commanding precision to tell us that they are incapable of doing these things. And we must listen to science. Even though science has been changing its hypotheses for the last 25,000 hypotheses that they've had. I mean, actually, I'm not making it up. This is what he said. It, and it was kind of interesting to hear that from a, you know, uptight New England patrician to, to have that awareness of the pretensions of science being rolled out here to tell us who should be in what place. Literature, philosophy, I said, Aristotle, 2,000 years ago or more, tells us, 2,450 years ago, quote, so, it, so is it naturally with the male and the female. The one is superior, the other inferior. The one governs, the other is governed. It was all very self-evident to, to Aristotle. Holy Scripture, the Bible, is wonderful, if you're looking for quotes on this. It reveals that God is not only a male, but a male supremacist. <laughs> Genesis 3.16 Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. 1 Corinthians 11.3 The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man. The man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. 
I'm reading this, I guess, in the appropriate place. I don't know. <laughs> Colossians 3, 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as it is fit in the Lord. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy uh, 2, 11. First, first uh, book of Timothy. But I suffer not, no, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp, usurp authority over the man. Now it's a very interesting thing, that if that's your natural place, it's very interesting, it's your natural place, it's the natural order, it's very congruent and confluent, yet they're always telling you, just, just stay there, don't you try to get out of line. Now I mean, why are you so worried about it, Timothy? If they are naturally there, why are you worried that they're going to outdo you, outshine you, outperform you, and, and not be under as they should? Feminist protest and rebellion, as you know, is not new. There's a famous letter, I'm sure many of you have read, um, written in 1776, a letter to her famous husband, John Adams, written by Abigail Adams, who urged that the laws of the new nation shall, quote, remember the ladies and not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. Why then not put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless to use us with cruelty and indignity? And she's using some pretty strong terms here about male-female relations. She's talking about the vicious and the lawless to use us with cruelty and indignity. She's alluding to some very real things that are happening, uh, forms of abuse and, and the like. In a manner that's, by the way, reminiscent of all privileged individuals. And I saw this, I mean, if you're talking about serfs, you're talking about Aristotle, you're talking about the Greek patriarchal ruling class, you talk about the, uh, the industrial bosses, the capitalists, whatever else. All, in all cases, they have the same trait, and John Adams did the same thing. He responded by using a technique that is very, very common. You'll see it all through history. He simply reversed the roles of victim and victimizer. And he wrote back to Abigail as follows. As to your extraordinary code of laws, I cannot but laugh. We men have only the name of masters and will not give up this, which would completely subject us to the despotism of the petticoat. You see, he is suffering from the despotism of the petticoat. So they consciously know where their interests lie. In the 19th century, political leaders, educators, and clergy thought females were creatures of emotion and innately unqualified to vote. You remember, for, uh, women struggled for the vote, and in our pluralistic, open, flexible, evolving system, they had to struggle for a mere hundred years, and they got the vote, just like that. I mean, just got up there, and it took only a hundred years of getting beaten and jailed and force-fed in prisons and all that, and then they got the vote. So what are you complaining about? Okay. <clears throat> Women really weren't qualified for the vote. And this was a big issue in the 19th century, all through. I mean, the incredible outpouring of literature about why, why women couldn't vote. They were too emotional. They were, too, they were physically infirm. Uh, the, speaking for many males of his day, one minister referred to, quote, the logical infirmity of mind which constitutes one of the weaknesses, and I might also say one of the charms of the feminine constitution, unquote. It was said that women voters would forfeit their right to chivalry's protections if they voted. They could best inspire their men toward the virtuous life by remaining above politics rather than wallowing in it, you see. 
that they that they were very moral and being moral they would not be able to to learn the arts of compromise and moderation that's an interesting point there um, suffrage also would cause them to forego marriage and motherhood and succumb succumb to the temptations of free love and socialism oh I wish it were true about socialism <clears throat> Furthermore, this is one of the most, this is probably the most common prognosis. The turbulence of political life would be too taxing on a woman's delicate nature and health. And in considering the frailty of women, of course, these anti-suffragists had to overlook the many, many working class women who stood from dawn to dusk toiling at factory looms 10, 12 hours a day. They overlooked the women who put in endless days at stoop labor picking crops in a hot field. The, or or the, the women who worked 70 hour weeks sewing garments in, in, in fire trap sweatshops. And by the way, subsequent events demonstrated that even the most fragile, the most delicate of the upper middle class ladies proved hardy enough to withstand the rigors of uh, walking into a polling booth and casting a ballot. They were able to do it without one recorded instance of any one of them fainting. The mode of gender oppression often varies according to class and race. Some bourgeois feminists are indifferent or overtly hostile to the recognition of class differences and class conflict. The same Abigail Adams, who so rightly argued women's cause, expressed an unlimited hostility toward the farmers of Western Massachusetts, who when they were facing ruinous taxes, foreclosures, all sorts of oppressions, uh, the, uh, being thrown into debtor's prison and the like, they took up arms, an armed rebellion in, in America in 1787 known as Shays' Rebellion. And in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, Abigail Adams denounced Shays' Rebellion, quote, ignorant, restless desperados without conscience or principles have led a deluded multitude to follow their standard under pretense of grievances which have no existence but in their imaginations. Talking about the poor women and men who challenge her class interests, she sounds like John Adams talking to her when she argues for women's rights. Continuing, some of them were crying out for a paper currency, some for an equal distribution of property, unquote. She went on to call for, quote, the most vigorous measures to quell and suppress these mobbish insurgents who dared to rebel against the property class. I'm sorry, these mobbish insurgents, unquote. I, I then added, who, dare, who dared to rebel against the property class and who did, well, and who dared, in her words, who dared to argue for, her words, an equal distribution of property, which I said a minute ago. Now that was her position, not because she was a woman, because, because there were women actively involved in Shays' Rebellion. There were women, farmers' wives who were out there, you know, loading the muskets and fighting and standing in front of the courthouses and, and, and opposing the debtors' prison. There were women in that fight too. She opposed that, she opposed that because of her class. Similarly, the French novelist George Sand, who defied 19th century conventions, you know, she smoked little cigars and she wore men's clothes, and she demanded equality for women. But she denounced the revolutionary women and men of the Paris Commune, and the women played a very prominent role in the Paris Commune. Les Incendaries, you know, they were out there causing the fires and all that right out on the battlefront. She denounced them 
Those who fought against the class privilege she herself enjoyed. Quote, the mob is composed in part of dupes and fools, in part of the most degraded and criminal elements of the population. Nothing but a lot of coarse clowns. That's a terribly insensitive way to talk about people who are fighting, putting their lives on the line because of oppressive economic conditions. So when push came to shove, the otherwise iconoclastic Georges Sand showed her bourgeois colors and her class bigotry, demonstrating once again that wearing pants is no guarantee of wisdom or fairness. <laughs> nineteen oh eight the labor militant clara zetkin sharply criticized quote a great and very influential portion of the english women's writers who oppose the legal protection of female labor which doesn't mean that their fight for equal rights within their particular class boundaries was not a legitimate fight and an important democratic gain i don't want to make that point that that's an irrelevant issue because <clears throat> through the nineteenth century in most states of the union women could not hold office or vote. They could not sit on juries. They were barred from medical schools, law schools, postgraduate training, either by law or custom. They didn't have legal custody of their own children or legal ownership of their own earnings or any other property or any inheritance. If a woman got an inheritance from her father, he died, it became her husband's property. Anything acquired before or during the marriage, these all became the husband's. The point I'm making, the fight, that fight for legal equality, that fight which involved these Boston Brahmin women, all these other women, that was a very important and very real and legal fight. But it was a limited fight because for millions of female wage workers who owned no property, they had no hope of inheritance, they had no hope of a higher education, they had no hope of going to law school. Such grievances were, and by the way, such grievances still are not the most urgent ones. Today, low-income women are far more heavily burdened by toil, drudgery, want, and illness than women or men of more affluent means. They enjoy far fewer, if any, opportunities for travel, advanced education, leisure, creative work, career advancement, and financial independence. They have less access to good maternal and medical services and child care. As one class-conscious white feminist put it, quote, Working class life is demeaning, not because its culture or values are inferior, but because of the lack of money, lack of opportunity, lack of job responsibility, lack of respect, lack of power. In short, because of oppressive treatment of the working class by the higher classes." Unquote. For many low-income Caucasian, African-American, and Latino women, Work does not offer the self-development of a professional career. The home is not something they want to escape to go out into the world. In fact, a lot of these women would be only too happy to be able to stay home more often. One in four women workers of color are employed as household workers. Among their stingiest employees are the professional women who hire domestics in order to free themselves for career pursuits. One study which was done about uh, over a decade ago shows that professional women regularly denied their domestic help, the benefits they took for granted for themselves, such as paid holidays, paid sick leave, regular wages. Only about half of them contributed to Social Security for their employees. And that's still the case today, 10 years later, and we had a dramatic example of that in the Zoe Baird hearings. Uh, nothing in this study has been said about male professionals, but I'm sure they're, they're no, their record is no better, if not worse. 
for many low-income women, work means long, exhausting hours for meager wages at unpleasant jobs. And by the way, because of hard times, the trend has been for more and more women to go into the workforce. From 1970 to 1990, the number of women working has grown substantially, and the number who have more than one job has increased 390%. Why does anybody have two or more jobs? It's not for the love of work, usually. It's because one job doesn't pay enough. It's really as simple as that. So women are working more and working harder for less. In some, what I'm saying here is that the mistreatment of women knows no class boundaries, but it is more pernicious among economically deprived groups, just as the mistreatment of men is, too. Oppressive class conditions and gender mistreatment reinforce each other. This double oppression of gender oppression and class oppression uh, becomes a triple oppression when we include the racism that low-income women of color have to encounter. Let me read something from a government report that was released in 1911, which tells you something about the political economy of gender oppression. The low wages at which women will work form the chief reason for employing them at all. A woman's cheapness is, so to speak, her greatest economic asset. She can be used to keep down the cost of production where she is regularly employed. She can be introduced as a strike breaker to take the place of men seeking higher wages or the threat of introducing her may be used to avert such a strike. But the moment she organizes a union and seeks by organization to secure better wages, she diminishes or destroys what is to the employer her chief value, namely her chief labor. And by the way, women did organize and did play an active role in the trade union movement. Nowadays, by the way, women are less likely to be used as strike breakers, but their job marketability still rests on their relatively low wage demands. In 1992, women earned 75 cents for every dollar that was earned by men. It was up from 59 and 60 cents of some earlier years. That's not because women's wages have so improved, that's because uh, men's wages have been deflating and being cut back. The top paying blue collar jobs are being systematically wiped out or exported so that we are closing the gender gap, but in the wrong direction. Not by bringing women's wages up, but by bringing men's wages down. The conditions of women vary greatly, as you know, from country to country. But what I found is there are remarkable variations, but there are also some remarkable and horrible similarities. In North America and Europe, almost all females attend secondary school. In a country like Pakistan, about 17% attend. In Iran, women are denied any advanced education. Important government posts are closed to them. A woman cannot occupy a top government post. An Iranian male can divorce his wife at any time without informing her. That staggered me, without informing her. You know, oh, don't come back tonight. I mean, just that morning you can say. But she has no such option. The head of Iran's Islamic Supreme Court, quoting him, quote, if women were given the right to divorce their husbands, being emotional by nature, they could make irrational decisions. This does not apply to men." Unquote. President Rafsanjani of Iran, the head of state of Iran, quote, he concurs, quote, men are stronger and more capable in all fields. Men's brains are larger, unquote. <laughs> so here is yet another politician who can't tell the difference between his brain and his ego, huh? <laughs> 
As I say, while there are differences, there are some common patterns. In all countries, females are disproportionately concentrated in the lower paying employments and greatly underrepresented in the more desirable positions. Across the globe, women grow approximately half the world's food, but own almost none of the land. In every country, whether it's Bangladesh or the United States, women take primary responsibility for child rearing and other life maintenance chores uh, and all the unpaid labor that goes with that that's essential to social production. In every country, women with dependent children who lack spousal support are among the very poorest. To conclude, however, that men as a class exploit women as a class, I think, I don't know if I want to use that term because, because, because that, that has a way of reducing or ignoring class reality. And what we're trying to do is bring class reality into this, not to diminish the question of gender oppression, but to show another dimension to it. <clears throat> Throughout the world, most men, by the way, also suffer from the economic oppressions of capitalism and imperialism. And since they compose two-thirds of the workforce, they too are mostly impoverished workers, and relatively few of the men who grow the other half of the world's food supply own any of the land either. You are listening to author Michael Parenti talking on the victimization of women. At the end of the program, there will be information on how to obtain a copy of this talk. It should be evident by now that economic factors underlie much, but not all, of women's oppression. Some writers claim that poverty is essentially gender-based. I'm not sure of that. In wanting to, to emphasize the seriousness of, seriousness of women's oppression, we often, what often happens is we get into this competition of oppressions. Who's more oppression? I'm more oppressed than you. I, as a black person, more oppressed than you as a white woman. Oh, I'm, I don't know, I, as a gay, I'm more oppressed than you. I'm, I, as a lesbian, I'm the most oppressed of all because I'm a woman and a, and a homophobia. You can go in and get a job, but if they knew that about me, blah, blah. And, and I, I've been at places where these kinds of arguments get going and, uh, and this becomes a competition as to who can demonstrate who is more oppressed. One can understand why. It's because we have scarce resources and limited agendas and we want to fight and where do we put our resources and how do we set up those agendas. There's a fear too that if you emphasize oppression A, you might be not thinking enough about oppression B. On the other hand, I think it's much better to kind of move away from that kind of thing, to move away from the, the kind of statement that uh, I've read too many times, which is that white women in the United States earn less than black men. I just read that recently in the uh, Yale Feminist Journal. White women in America earn less than black men. Are we to conclude from that that white women, by virtue of being women, are more impoverished and oppressed than black men? First of all, the data on income takes into account only persons with jobs and does not factor in unemployment, which is far worse among African-American males than it is for white or even black females, being as high as 40 and 50% in inner city neighborhoods. By every other indicator, whether it's high school dropouts, college attendance, homelessness, suicide, drug addiction, incarceration rates, death rates, African-American males do not fare as well as white females. What I'm arguing is that poverty is a class condition not fundamentally determined by gender or race, although both gender and race are major contributing factors. Frequently, we list the underdogs in our society as workers, women, and people of color, as if these were three distinct groups, as if all workers were white males. But people of color and women of all colors 
are highly concentrated in the laboring class. They too are workers. This is not to deny that race and gender pre present their own particular imperatives, and I'm going to talk about some of those in a few minutes. It is, it's to note that class is a broader and more inclusive designation than normally thought. What I'm saying is that gender, race, and class are themselves. Those modes of oppression are within a totality, a system of power, which itself is a class system, which itself is based, a social system of power that is self-based on class. Not, and we're not talking about just class, but class power. And we should make a distinction here between class, meaning income, status, lifestyles, and those things, which is what people usually think of when they refer to class, and class as a relationship to the means of production, class as a relationship to who controls and expropriates the surplus value of labor, who gets wealthy off it, who uses that immense wealth, who controls the other social institutions, and the like. Class divisions differ from the other kinds, taking it in this dialectical sense, in this systemic sense. Victor Wallace made a point, let me quote him, one can talk about equality between men and women and between different ethnic groups. But one cannot talk about equality between the capitalist class and the working class. Classes are, by definition, unequal. The capitalist class would not exist if it did not dominate the working class, and if it did not have a different relationship to the means of production and wealth. If we were all equal economically in class, there would be no class. You would, you would have eliminated it. Well, then how can women win equality under capitalism if no one else can, if there is this overriding class structure. Well, for one thing, they could fight to end the super-exploitation they endure. They, can, uh, they could fight to improve the conditions of their lives within working or middle-class confines, just as the classes themselves can fight in toto to improve their conditions within an existing capitalist system by extracting some concessions whenever they can. And of course, women and people of color can and do fight a host of other discriminatory policies and practices that are not directly related to class. I don't want to reduce everything to, to that one thing. There are some who argue that gender oppression is the most essential. It is the substructure, the patriarchal substructure. That mode of oppression is the most essential oppression from which all other oppressions are derivative. Again, this becomes the, you know, the competition of oppressions because it is so universal and because it, it's so ancient. It predates all these other things. Well, there's a lot of things that predate capitalism and even class society, you know, uh, murder, wars, uh, authoritarian states maybe, racial oppression. They, maybe they don't predate class society, but they certainly predate capitalism. You wouldn't try to explain history and say that the motive force of history is the oppression of adults over children. There's another mode of oppression that's universal. It goes back to prehistoric times. It's found in every society. Adults have a dominant role over children. But you can't elevate that relationship to the key dynamic, to the primary contradiction in explaining the, the development of history. That's the only thing I'm arguing. The important question is not which came first, gender or class, but how is capitalism sustained by sexism? And how does it, in turn, buttress sexism? How does it help create new forms of gender exploitation or lend new life to old forms? And here are what I consider some of the links. First, capitalism rewards the impulses of exploitation, accumulation, competitiveness, ruthless self-interest, uh, individualized aggrandizement, scarcity psychology, and the indifference of suffering, the sufferings of the disadvantaged.
Such impulses make capitalism conducive to gender and racial oppression and make sexism and racism very functional for capitalism. So they, it's a very symbiotic thing there. Second, capitalism relies on sexism as a diversionary force. Not only division, divisionary or divisive, but diversionary force. Conservative leaders will seize, always seize upon, you know, irrelevant foes to channelize popular discontent. We've had in recent years this whole idea of cultural issues. And you have conservatives getting up and, and conjuring up all sorts of other issues. Abortion, affirmative action, protecting the traditional family, targeting a, a pornography, <clears throat> gay rights, questions of sexual morality. But they're always looking for other issues. They're looking for non-economic issues to distract or cut, to divert you and convince you what the problem is. These become the issues that they constantly harp on to, to try to convince you that the reason you might feel the world is falling apart is because of these weird groups that are undermining our moral fiber. Feminists are one of those targets, as you know. They're targeted by conservatives, especially the Christian right, as one of the groups that represent what is wrong with America. Third, another relationship between capitalism and gender and racial oppression is that wealth is accumulated by expropriating the labor power of the worker. The secret to getting rich is not to work hard, but to get a lot of other people to work hard for you. That's how uh, you get rich. Sexism and racism make that expropriation much easier. Conservatives have a raging fear. You can read it in Aristotle. You can read it in John Adams. You can read it in Madison's Federalist Paper Number 10. You can read all through history. They have a raging fear of class equality. They constantly used to talk about it. They used to call it leveling. You read it in Abigail Adams. These people who would want an equal distribution of property. You see. And that fear of class equality extends to racial and gender equality also. Women and people of color do some of the dirtiest, toughest, lowest paying work in our society. Greater equality for them means better pay for them, which can only cut into profits. Every dollar I have to give you in work is one less dollar for me in profits. And conservatives are the first to appreciate this, sometimes long before some of our own people. There are very powerful economic incentives for keeping women in their place, for keeping women subordinate, for resisting the equalization of life chances by any disfranchised group. It's no accident that the most persistent attacks against feminism have come from fervent right-wing defenders of capitalism. Conservatives have been at the forefront of the fight against the Equal Rights Amendment, against legal abortion, affirmative action, family leave, and support for women with dependent children. In traditional patriarchal society, women are treated as the property of men. Under capitalism, they are treated as class commodities. By the way, which is a variation of the same thing. I'm not saying that the commodification of women is a phenomenon that's unique to capitalist culture. You can find it elsewhere, but it's brought to new heights or new depths in capitalist culture. By commodification, I mean the process of objectifying and transforming the female appearance and body to fit marketable standards. What passes for feminine beauty tends to reflect the dominant class standards of society. In feudal China, the mutilation by foot binding transformed upper class women into class commodities who would have neither the capacity nor the need to walk because they were served by others. 
a luxury, by, by the way, that was not available to the peasant women who worked in the fields. When you hear that phrase, oh, Chinese women used to have their foot binded, that's not true. I mean, it's a very small percentage in the landlord class who did. Chinese women who were breaking their backs in the fields never had that grotesque luxury. Uh, turn of the century, white skin was a sign. The whiter your skin, the paler your skin, that was a sign of your class elevation. Women went out in parasols, they wore gloves, they wore broad-rimmed hats. To be out in the sun was something you didn't want to do. Who could afford not to be out in the sun? It was those people who didn't work in the fields or out there, you see. And that was a sign of upper-class beauty. Later on, as being out in the sun became something of the, the playing traits of the rich and famous and their boating and their traveling and all this sort of thing, suddenly being out in the sun, summering down in Monte Carlo and all, having a suntan in the middle of December, that became the thing to have. But again, these are all class standards. In present-day U.S. society, class-bound standards of beauty, the prototype is uh, feminine beauty, is blonde, tallish, very slim, well-tailored and polished. Which, by the way, is a close approximation of the upper-class Anglo-Protestant prototype. Meanwhile, millions of ordinary U.S. women seek to fit the idealized mold by subjecting themselves to the mutilations of cosmetic surgery, reshaping various parts of their bodies, or they resort to diets, weight reduction drugs, and fitness centers where they attempt to develop the upper body and narrow the lower body so that the new woman better resembles the old man. For, for millions of women, the worst of all fates is to be endowed with a ample posterior. What I'm talking about here is how people often end up collaborating in their own oppression. Some statistics. The average 5 foot 8 Miss America contestant in 1954 weighed 132 pounds, but in 1980 weighed 117 pounds. The average model high fashion model, was, who's the epitome of uh, upper class svelte fashion, is five foot ten and weighs 111 pounds. Feed that woman something. <clears throat> One study found that 80%, 80% of fourth grade girls in California, fourth grade, now we're talking about nine year olds, 80% have already been on their first diet. In Long Island, another study showed that girls 12, 13, 14 were not growing because they've been on so many diets, they're on these self-starvation tracks. Some 25% of North American females suffer from either anorexia, which is uncontrollable self-starvation, it doesn't get funny anymore, or bulimia, which is a forceful, willful removal of food from the digestive tract either by forced vomiting or by laxatives immediately after the meal. Well, as I say, this shows how people can sometimes end up collaborating in their own oppression by internalizing the victimizing idolatry. Well, is the condition of women any better under socialism? What little there is left? Well, having understood the functional relationship between female subjugation and class domination, many socialists anticipated that the destruction of class society, with the destruction of class society, that sexism would pass away. That is, once men stopped oppressing men, they would also stop oppressing women. That class, the transformation in class relations would automatically transform gender relations. That was the theory. In actuality, women's place at work and home did not change that dramatically. Women still did most of the life maintenance tasks at home and the child rearing. 
women went to work, they were still generally in secondary occupations. Relatively few women reached leadership positions in socialist societies. Still, I want to say that the transformations that did take place in communist and other revolutionary societies did benefit women significantly. And they represented a dramatic change in the condition of their lives from the often horrible, utterly horrible oppressions they suffered in the pre-revolutionary society. In reactionary countries like Poland, Bulgaria, China, Cuba, Russia, I mean, once the revolution came in, you found female educational levels rose dramatically. Women could enter professions which they had been previously barred from. They dramatically increased their numbers in party and parliamentary affairs to a far greater extent than in Western legislators and Western parliaments. They, they enjoyed improved health care, especially prenatal and postnatal care, child care assistance, legal abortions, which, by the way, have just been outlawed in Poland and in East Germany, except for very rare, restricted measures. The Marxist government of South Yemen abolished child marriages. Many of these countries also introduced egalitarian divorce laws. In all these countries, women were guaranteed a right to a job. In communist countries, 90% of all women worked, and prostitution was greatly reduced, never abolished, but it was greatly reduced. In Cuba, one of the interesting things you had, and you had it also in the GDR and a few other countries, you had what were called the family codes. They weren't criminal law, but they were enforced as civil law, which said that both, all adults in the family had equal obligation for life maintenance tasks. They were called the housework laws, and there was a big campaign to say it is not unmasculine to, to do this work. And your obligation is not only to help out with your wife, when you help out, that presumes that it's her primary responsibility. Your obligation is equal to be doing this. So there were these kinds of advances with all the other contradictions and all the other sexist things that, that still remained in these societies. Now, with the collapse of communism and the restoration of capitalism in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet U Union, women are now tasting the blessings of the free market. They are now the first fired and the last hired. 70% of unemployed people in East Germany and in the former Soviet Union, many, a very high percentage of them, professional women with college educations, 70% are women. So unemployment has hit women much harder, even, even harder than men, and it's hit men pretty hard too. Now new positions and training opportunities go to men first. Women also have lost all those other services, free childcare services, paid maternity leave, paid leave to, to tend to sick children, and, that, and, and the loss of those things create further obstacles to female employment. The effects of the reemergence of capitalism in the former communist countries have been catastrophic for the condition of women. They represent a historical setback of tremendous dimensions. There has been a marked increase in poverty, homelessness, crime, cutthroat competitiveness, profiteering, runaway inflation, unemployment, suicide, and mental illness and women have suffered disproportionately higher rates. Polish President Lech Wałęsa had harsh words for his compatriots who moaned about the reforms. He said, quote, you wanted to have America, you wanted the market to function as in America, so we've done that, and it's hard so far. See, he's counseling patients. Wałęsa is now a millionaire, so he can counsel patients, an admirable patients to those who, who suffer there's one capitalist bright spot in Eastern Europe that is, in most of the ex-communist countries, beauty contests are in. 
pornography is back in a big way and as I said prostitution is back in a very big way so that while having less opportunity at the workplace women now have more opportunity in the free market to commodify their bodies there's another mode of victimization which for which I think the word sexism doesn't seem sufficient it seems too mild a term I'm referring to the stark brutality and physical violence that's perpetrated on a regular basis throughout the world against millions of women and, and I term that male terrorism we should note that that male terrorism is present on a massive scale in just about every country and it seems to be an ubiqu ubiquitous reality in gender relations often regardless of class factors although class does may come in as a factor but we're not here talking about an independent force which, which must be defined and looked at in that way I mean relatively independent Let's, for instance, throughout much of the world, rape is considered a male prerogative or a crime, not against the woman, but against the honor of her family or her husband. Frequently, the rapist is himself a family member. In the maternity hospital of Lima, Peru, 90% of the young mothers aged 12 to 16 have been raped by their father, stepfather, or close relative. In parts of Asia and the Middle East, the shame of rape is so great that the victim is sometimes killed by family members to restore the honor of the family. The victim, not, not the rapist. One study found that in India, 80% of prostitutes came to their profession after being ejected from their communities after having been raped. In Niger, a country in Africa, self-proclaimed holy men incited mobs to attack women in bars and bordellos. The men, the holy men said that the women's indecent dress and conduct was responsible for the drought. These are the finest theological minds uh, today, perhaps matched only by our own Pat Robinson, you know, who equates feminism and lesbianism with witchcraft and Satanism and cults of violence and all sorts of other festering things in it. His diseased little mind. <clears throat> I want to point out there's an economic dimension to some aspects of male terrorism. Millions of women and girls are kidnapped or sold into sexual slavery, a transfer from the class that can't afford to feed itself to the class that can use its surplus funds to procure whatever sexual services it desires. Well, glad we don't live in those countries, one might say. Well, for all the advances made by U.S. females, they still endure dreadful victimization. An estimated 12.1 million U.S. women have been raped, or one in eight, some estimates are much higher than that. Often by men they know, including members of their family. A random sample of women in Los Angeles County found one in five reporting that their first experience with sex, with coitus, was a rape. <clears throat> Only one in six rapes are reported, and less than 40% of the reported rapes result in arrest. Only 3% of those result in conviction. So you're really talking about a fraction of a percent you run a higher risk going to jail for purse snatching than for raping. Hey, well, a purse is property, don't forget. So over 29% of rapes involve females 11 years old or younger. Another 32% are between 11 and 17 years old. So we're talking about 61% of rape victims are children or girls, young girls. Of the 683,000 rape victims every year, some 27,000 suffer serious physical injury. 
There are usually serious psychological effects. Rape victims are almost nine times more likely than non-victims to, to attempt suicide, five times more likely to develop alcohol problems, and twice as likely to experience major depression or other post-traumatic stress. Male terrorism takes other forms. One in four U.S. women report being sexually molested as a child, usually repeatedly over prolonged periods of time by a male family member. Every day in the United States, four women are murdered by men with whom they have been intimate. Murder is the second leading cause of death among young women. A woman is more likely to be assaulted, injured, raped, or killed by a male partner than by any other assailant in the United States. An estimated three million women in this country are battered every year by their husbands or male partners, often repeatedly. And you, as you know, battered women, you hear sometimes, well, why don't they just get out? Battered women often do not have the means, they often don't have the support, they get out and then they're caught and dragged back and they face worse punishment. They call the police and arrest is almost the least used procedure in domestic violence cases. We've heard Lundy Bankrupt had a very interesting study on this. She said, you know, we've been told that male batterers are just guys who can't help themselves. They're sick, they're disturbed, uh, and they're overcome with impulses and rage and so they do this which occasionally may be the case. But what we know about male batterers, what we know about men who beat women, is that they know perfectly well what they're doing. They're perfectly in control. They set limits on their violence. They don't go any further than that. They use it in certain ways to elicit certain responses. They use the threat of violence when they don't want to go all the way, whatever. And they know what they're doing. The cops come and they sit down, open a newspaper or put the TV on and say, I don't know, she fell, she's hysterical, I don't know what happened. This is a guy who's so enraged and out of control no, no, they're very much in control, and they use their violence to control. A widespread form of male terrorism is sexual harassment. As you know, workplaces, on the streets, men subject women to a continual barrage of uninvited overtures, intimidations, physical molestations, interferences, comments, hazing, taunting, obscenities. The female worker who doesn't respond to sexual overtures of a male superior risks being passed over for promotion or being fired. For women, fear becomes a kind of second nature, a constant awareness of postures, comments, actions, taking precautions and all that. By the way, in ways that men rarely worry about or are that aware of, I, I can say that for myself. I want to add the positive side very briefly uh, that women have been fighting back. They've been organizing, they're demanding that both government and society offer protections from gender abuse. And it is not just a psychological problem. It is a political problem. It is a problem of political power to have the law on your side and to have that law used as an instrument that doesn't protect the batterer or collude with him, but that punishes him and stops him. If these guys knew, if these guys knew, don't give me the stuff about irresistible impulse, they can't help themselves. That's a lot of baloney. And if the batterer knew he was going to get 12 to 15 years, if he did that, he would think twice. It would very much be a deterrence. I'm not saying writing the law would therefore change everything, but we certainly do have to mobilize the law. And the target in these areas have to be men, not women. A friend of mine was telling me of a high school program where women are learning these modes of deflection, evasion, self-protection, avoidance of situations and all those kinds of things, self-defense and, and the like. And I'm saying to myself, why should these young high school girls have to learn this? What do I have to learn? Why should I have to go through life being a Bruce Lee, warding off fighting? 
And why aren't there any sensitivity programs for the high school boys? Those are the ones who would need the education. That's where the money should go. <clears throat> Both public officials and individual men must strive to end male terrorism. In the women's struggle, men are the problem. Now, not every male is a rapist or a woman beater, but every male who fails to appreciate the magnitude and utter horror of these crimes and is silent about them is complicit with the criminals. It's time that men give their full support to the women's organizations that are fighting male terrorism and all other forms of sexism. That's what it means, I think, what it means to be a real man. A real man, it means nothing more than to be a decent human being who believes in social justice and fair play and human dignity. Nothing more than that, but that's quite a lot. Thank you very much. <clears throat>